Hey everybody, it is Monica Perez here with a returning guest, a fan favorite, the man who is always up to speed on what's happening in the minute in the world, in economics, finance, all of that. Uh, it's lovely to see you, Jason. Jason Purcell, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here as always. And uh, I probably said this a couple times already, but I just can't, um, I count my, bless my blessings every time I come on this show because like, I just can't believe I've been on here multiple times and it's awesome. So if anybody doesn't know, I started out as a fan of the Monica Perez show a few years ago, and now I'm on the Monica Perez show. So. <laughs> well, you have absolutely earned a returning spot because I just love the research you do. I love your insights, your knowledge, and it's about a subject subject matter that's hard for people to understand. So it's super helpful that you, that we can have a conversation that kind of makes it accessible. And I'm super rusty. I used to be in finance, but I'm so rusty that I'm like man on the street now. So uh, that's why I was wanting to ask you because there was so much news about financial markets, um, interest rate outlooks, like inflation. Uh, although I believe it was lower, it wasn't as low as expected. And that, of course, sends markets... Uh, um, roiling, but I wanted you to tell us what you think is really going on and what your expectations are. No promises to anybody. I'm just very interested in your thought process. And I mean, even the best guys, Wall Street Journal, the research analyst, you could go back and look at this stuff. And I bet a coin flip would get you closer to the predictive value of the Wall Street Journal. But, um, but I like what goes into your expectations. And that's what I want to understand best. So tell us what you think. There was actually a study done on economic outlooks by, I think it was specifically Federal Reserve economists, and it looked at um, economic projections for, I think it was over a period of a couple of decades, and the end result was, yeah, it doesn't do better than a coin toss. So, yep, almost, you know, right on the money there. <laughs> but, but it yeah, does, it best. is helpful to understand stuff. And I mean, that's the thing. So I, it's not, I, I'm not, I actually, did I tell you this about the, I would like bet on stuff in the market and be like super bummed when I lost. And I asked a priest about it. I was like, I don't know what my problem is. Like, what is it? Am I materialistic? Like, what is it? And he said, no, you're slothful. He said, because you want to make money without earning it. And I was like, wow, yeah. And I wasn't even doing the homework on the stocks. I was just like making, you know, just bets. And yeah. so I never, ever like dabbled in that again. And uh, but I do, you know, I do think that economic outlook is important and just the fundamentals, what's happening, the inflation, you know, why is it, why does it keep going? And and why does that matter? And I, I'm still I still think it's possible that the recession was the covid lockdown was the forced recession. We're not going to have like your normal 18 month recession. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's just that's just my dabbling. So so what do you think is happening now? I'll tell you that it's become extremely difficult to hold on to a recession call. It seems like every week or every couple of weeks that goes by, there's another person in the macro field, not not a mainstream media person like a CNBC or a, you know, some Wall Street Journal opinion columnist or whatever, but somebody who's really doing their own work, who um, who I go to as far as, um, you know, just 
data points about what to look for for my own analysis and things like that. It seems like every month or every couple of weeks, another one of those people comes around to the soft landing call, which is the soft landing call is is what Monica just kind of explained, which is uh, the recession was the COVID lockdown and there's not going to be another one in, you know, 2024 or call it the next six, uh, seven, eight quarters, something like that. Um, and the, And the reason for that is, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Once you call it the soft landing, then I think it's impossible because I feel like we've never, ever really had a soft landing. That's just a farce that the Fed makes up to justify its existence. Yeah, I mean, so, virtually every uh, virtually every Federal Reserve rate hike cycle. Am I saying virtually? I want to say it's every single one. I mean, even going back to 1920, 21. So, um, yeah, it's, it's really every time they we we look at is the. Um, one way to think about it, one way that you can't think about this is that uh, financial institutions are responsible for generating credit. Credit creates demand. What is GDP? GDP is just demand, right? So it's all the spending, all the aggregate spending that was done in the economy. And a lot of that is done with borrowed money. So borrowed money drives spending. There is this feedback loop or this feed through loop, I guess you could say, from uh, credit to spending, investment to GDP. Um, so that's why credit is so important. The institutions that are responsible for generating that credit, the way that they make money is a spread in between interest rates. So they will often borrow short and then they'll lend long. So you can think about that spread as the difference between, say, the 10-year U.S. bond yield and maybe Fed funds or the 10-year U.S. bond yield and the three-month U.S. bond yield. You know, borrow for 10 years versus borrow for 90 days. When that spread is positive, your general um, investment strategy in the securities market, in in, in um, bank lending, is going to be profitable because you're paying your depositor, let's say, 2%, and then you're lending the money at 4 or you're lending the money at 5 That's a profitable business model. Well, when the Fed takes short-term rates, because that's the only thing that they have control over, right? So they can control the, the front end of what we call the curve. When they take one end of that spread and they jack it up all the way to 5 you know, from zero to five over the course of a year. And the 10-year rate is not moving up that high. So right now we have a 10-year at about 4.3, and we have a short rate of, if you want to approximate it with Fed funds, call it 5.33. Um, well, there goes your profitable spread, like your net interest margin is gone. So yeah. To put it in a, uh, like here and now, so I have a 401k that I have in cash right now. It's mm -hmm. old from way back when. And I was like, I need to ask a friend of mine. It's like, I, what, what should I do with it? You know, got any good ideas for fathers and like computers or whatever. And uh, she said, you should just buy, a, you know, a money Nvidia? market for 5%. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, she was like, just, oh yeah, NVIDIA, that would have been good. Not today, probably. But um, so she, so I looked and I was going to, I was willing to commit to 10 years. It's a 401k. The 10-year on my little E-Trade account was lower than the one-year. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, they really are pricing in declining interest rates, which is amazing to me because they worked so hard to get them back up to 5%. So I would say it's, it wasn't a soft landing. It was a rock hard hit a brick wall landing, mm -hmm. but they just didn't call it that. But uh, I would think they would do anything to keep it from going back down since it took them 20 years or 15 years to get it back up. 
Yeah. So with the Fed and their reaction as far as like what they want to do with interest rates, um, I'm pretty common that Jerome Powell really wants to. And this isn't just my opinion. It really doesn't matter uh, who you listen to. Um, you can read his favorite columnist at the Wall Street Journal, Nick Temeros. Um, But everybody's pretty sure that Powell would rather go down as Paul Volcker than uh, William McChesney Martin or Arthur Burns. Right. So you have two Fed shares who are known for letting inflation uh, get out of control. And then you've got uh, Paul Volcker, who, whether it's true or not, is credited with saving the day. Um, and the way that he did that is by jacking up interest rates. And that's who Jerome Powell wants to be. However, Jerome Powell also um, has a constraint. Uh, he has a political constraint, which Federal Reserve chairmen are not supposed to have political constraints necessarily, but they do because they're appointed by people who are elected, which makes them politicians. I'm sorry, that's what they are. Um, that's what Milton Friedman would say, um, at least. And, you know, so people who say that the Fed is independent, like, I'm, I'm sorry, it's just not. <laughs> so and the people who say that it's private, we can maybe we could do a whole episode on that. But the people who say that it's a private institution are also wrong. Uh, but anyway, so I'm holding you to an episode on that. Yeah. I'm writing um, it down right now. Okay. Yeah, that'd be great. Because I, I hear that a lot. And I'm just, yeah. you know, like, I get it. The organizational structure, technically you're owned by your member banks. But I mean, you should just look at everything the Fed does. Anyway. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so Jerome Powell wants interest rates to be higher and he wants to kick inflation in the teeth. But he's also worried about his job. And so he's not going to preside over a financial crisis and be the guy who does nothing. So as long as there's not basically the way that I look at it is that as long as there's not a credit event and by credit event, we mean something like the uh, panic of 2007, um, specifically August 2007, where every market that had any connection with subprime mortgages basically broke in half. And then that's August 2007 is about when you saw the first Fed rate cut. So they had a couple of conference calls after that, and then they started cutting rates. Um, and that's a year before the recession actually started. So when I say credit, credit event, I'm talking about something like that uh, or something that happened uh, like in 1997 uh, with the Asia financial crisis. Very different setup because it's not uh, beginning in the United States, but a very similar thing to that. So Jerome Powell is not going to sit on his hands as something like that happens. However... I've seen a couple of posts and a little bit of talk from Fed officials about not Fed, not necessarily Fed official, but, but like Fed tangential economists, people who are sort of in this network of, you know, central bank economists who think very differently from economists in, in the industry, I think. Maybe not very differently, but a little bit. Um, I've seen a little bit of hinting that we may see a divergence in the kind of policy that they use to address that. What I mean by that is we tend to think of quantitative easing, right? The Fed goes out and buys bonds. We tend to think of that as stimulus, and we tend to think of low interest rates as stimulus. So the Fed does QE. The Fed uh, cuts interest rates. That's what we would call stimulus. The Fed has been floating, and by the Fed, I don't mean uh, you know them as a combined organization like the board. I mean individual board members and, and economists who do research for the Fed are looking or have been talking about doing QE in one direction and then REITs in another direction. So in theory, you could have 5% Fed funds, and the Fed could be picking up $200 billion in treasury bonds a month, right? 
the having both of those things going on at the same time, which we think of as foot on the gas and the brake at the same time. <laughs> but they're trying to sell an idea that, oh, maybe it's not foot on the gas and the brake at the same time. Maybe we can do QE with high rates. So I could see a situation, honestly, where and this is why this is why this is just getting so complicated, uh, because this is the. I don't I don't count the 2020 recession as like a raw organic economic cycle. So we've only had QE, at least in the United States, as a policy tool for 15 years. Uh, well, I guess 16 since 2008. So there's only one other instance to reference or there's only this 16 year period to reference as far as what the Fed is going to do with one tool versus another when one thing or another happens. When inflation got really high in the late 70s, there was no quantitative easing. So I don't know. So the Fed didn't have that as an option available to respond to a recession. So what's part of what's making this so uh, muddy is trying to understand what happens if Maybe there is a financial crisis, a credit event of some big magnitude. There already is one in China. So that's why China is cutting rates and they're stimulating and they're floating QE. We talked about that in our last economic update, but there is already a financial crisis in China. What happens if there is also one in the United States and Europe, but the Fed needs to continue to appear as though it's fighting inflation? What happens if there's a credit event in the US, Europe, or both? but the Fed is not getting the 2% inflation rate that it wants. And so it has to maintain the posture of fighting inflation, but it also has to respond to a financial crisis. So China, so China's having this problem. I noticed that as soon as I read that today, that they were cutting rates, I thought the dollar, which last time I was out of the country, like I was in Japan, like I mentioned, was extremely strong. So I assume it's still strong and that has got to make it stronger. Mm-hmm. So when the dollar is really strong, that puts pressure, negative pressure on the interest rates. So organically, is that, does that mean the Fed funds rate can remain high even, and that actual borrowing rates are lower? Like how does the, how does the Fed, how, how does the, oh. how does that pressure on the dollar, upward pressure on the dollar impact Fed policy? Well, what happens is now that China is cutting the interest rate differential between so the pressure on China is actually getting worse. So as long as the Fed keeps this interest rate where it is and the same goes for, by the way, the same goes for Canada, uh, which just no, they didn't cut rates yet. They're basically their policy is in line with the US. Uh, the same goes for Canada, Europe, the UK, all these other countries. When the when the Fed keeps its interest rate high, that keeps the pressure on those other countries. So when China uh, now that China is cutting their uh, the risk reward of between investing in China, investing in the United States. Well, it just got better to invest in the United States. Right. Because that difference used to be three, call it three point five percent. Now it's three point seven five you know, something like that. So whenever the Fed it keeps its its rate high and other countries go into a, you know, a panic or a recession or whatever, and they're cutting rates, well, that just increases the pressure. Um, as the economic cycle deteriorates in other countries, this is whether or not the United States has a recession. But as everybody else does, or as China does, and some combination of China, Japan, and, and countries in Europe, which, by the way, is... Um, 
we haven't gotten to that yet, but Japan entered a what's called a technical recession, which which is two negative quarters of GDP. Same thing happened for the UK. Uh, Germany has had one negative quarter of GDP. And then there's a few other peripheral countries in Europe and Asia uh, that are in what's called a technical recession right now. So the business cycle is turning down in a lot of different pockets of the world. The pressure that that's going to put on JPAL is actually to cut rates. Because, again, it's that risk-reward payoff between investing here and investing there. There's already been a huge interest rate differential between these markets. I mean, Japan's been in negative territory for uh, 10, 15 years. Um, but as they don't increase interest rates, so the longer that the U.S. keeps its rates high, that just tells investors around the world who have dollars, and it's a choice of putting them in China, putting them in Japan, putting them in Europe, whatever. Uh, that just tells those investors, hey, put your dollars here because, you know, first of all, the U.S. is the only economy that has the kind of growth rate that we have right now. Uh, we're the only economy that has the kind of stock returns that we do right now, but also we're the issuer of the reserve currency and we're paying the highest rate right now. So when you put those two factors together, you know, that's that's really the safest place for your money. And that's not going to reverse until, you know, Powell makes a move downward. Um, so again, it's it's very muddy. You know, <laughs> I, I wish I had I wish the framework for this stuff was a little bit easier, but um, there, it's like there's certain instances in which low rates mean dollar lower, you know, and then there's other instances where low rates mean dollar higher. It's it's really about uh, right. relative to, to what the other central banks are doing. So what happened this week was inflation came in higher than expected than expected, even mm -hmm. though it was lower than it had been. And that made them say that we are uh, not going to lower rates at the what we thought maybe even I thought I heard maybe even for the rest of the year they were not going to lower rates. They trotted out a couple of their. So what the Fed does whenever they what the Fed does whenever they need to change their tune is they arrange speaking events uh, with board mm -hmm. members and then those board members will drop the right hints to, you know, convince the market that this is happening one way or another. So, yeah, continue. that's what they did. So, yeah, continue. I was surprised that the stock market and I, I always just look at the Dow because I don't I have like my little retirement stuff is dividend stock like that. And it just it kept going up even long after people were talking about a reset, a possible mm -hmm. recession and. I thought, well, okay, they're really expecting a cut in rates. And I know that the Dow backed off a little bit right now, but I would expect a huge sell-off if they are not going to cut rates for the rest of the year. Does that mean, I mean, obviously, given that the one-year interest rate that I was getting on my little money market is literally higher than the two-year, it seems like the markets really do expect him to cut rates, even though he's saying that he isn't. Yeah. Um, okay. And I would I would leave the. Uh, I don't think that the Fed's official position now is that they're not going to cut rates by the end of the year. The, uh, there may have been one um, governor or board member right. who okay. said what they do is they say if they'll say if blah, 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 statistic does X, it may not be appropriate to blah, 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 this. And it's really just like they're just nothing, you know, baseless statements. Uh, 
So what happened, I think I think that what happened is that you got the inflation print that was higher than it was, quote unquote, supposed to be. And then the bond market kind of freaked out, which it's not supposed to do. Um, there's a lot of people in the financial world who say that the bond market actually directs the Fed. Um, so the Fed just follows some combination of the six month uh, bond yield and the two year bond yield um, and then calls it a day. And I think that this last week is actually evidence against that because what happened is we get an inflation print. Well, inflation is backward looking. Our our best information about inflation is a month ago. So if the bond market is predicting the future, then why would it react by uh, 10 basis points or 12 basis points or whatever it was? And by the way, uh, basis point is a hundredth of a percent and a average daily move in like a 10-year yield is between three and five. So if you get a, a one-day move of 10, 12, you know, 15, that's large. So um, if the bond market is really telling the Fed what to do, or if the bond market really already knows what's going on, then you shouldn't see that kind of big reaction to an inflation print, you know, especially because that's inflation last month. Uh, but I, I think that the Fed realized that they had led markets to be too confident about the direction of rates and that that miss that data miss um or over overshot yeah that overshot caused them to kind of come back to the table and say yeah the markets are way too confident in rate cuts so what do we need to do we need to send out some people to signal that there are going to be rate cuts but not that many uh, and so what did it. happen uh so what what did happen is that rate expectations which um, I think the best metric for that, um, the, the the yield curve itself is good too, um, but the I think the most straightforward way to to look at that is interest rate futures. Uh, so the path of of rates, the number of implied rate cuts as given by interest rate mm-hmm. futures, mm-hmm. went from seven last month to five this month, and they gave back um, a good chunk of that was just in the last week with that you know with that overshoot in the inflation print um so that that definitely jacked around expectations a lot so what sorry what does the futures say i missed that part uh well yeah let me pull what the exact, rates do they think yeah, yeah so i'll i will pull the exact numbers but the, it went from an an expected seven rate cuts to an expected five rate cuts okay that's still and a lot was, see i mean yeah, I yeah. just feel like, uh, I mean, there is a new normal and I guess they're over 5% or around 5% is much, much higher than it, and it had been. Because like, I remember 7%, like my first mortgage was 7%. Mm-hmm. And then it's just never been anywhere near there since then. And now I guess it's close. So, and I want to ask you about, um, have we not been in the, what, uh, who's Jim? Who's Soros's old, in the guy George. in Singapore with the bow tie? George Soros's original partner. George Soros's original partner. Hmm. Somebody's um, going to know what that is. His name is Jim. He wears bow ties. He lives in Singapore. You oh, uh, Jim. Well, um, Jim Grant is. Not Jim Grant, okay. the interest rate guy. Nope. Oh, okay. This, but this say, is the guy. Affiliate yeah, no, he's the guy who says that we are in the biggest bond bubble in human history. He keeps expecting it to break and like mm-hmm. for 15 years or 20 years it's been like the bond bubble's going to burst. Mm-hmm. Has it burst? Has the bond bubble burst? 
Yeah, I mean, the bond bubble means rates are way too long, way too low for yeah. way too long. But they went up so much. I'm just wondering, I mean, do you agree with the statement that we have been in the biggest bond bubble in human history in the past 15 um, I don't... Well, if you were to call it a bubble, then at some point, the person who made the decision to invest in this thing has to get burned, right? So... You can think about that as is like if we're talking about the early 2000s housing bubble, I buy that house with a subprime mortgage and then rates go, you know, they get jacked up to 5% and then I can't pay my mortgage. So I lose the house. But, you know, so that's a really bad trade. That's a bubble trade. You know, it's 1630s. I buy tulips at one price and then the collapse comes. And so that was a bad trade. So I guess to really at I guess to really know if it was a bubble, you would have to say, okay, if I invested in um, 30 year US bonds in 1981, well, inflation went down and interest rates went down that entire time. So I made out like a freaking bandit, you know, if I did the same thing in 1991, Inflation went down and rates kept going down, so I made out like a freaking bandit. If I did that in 2001, same story. If I did that in 2011, same story, right? So if I had just gone long treasuries, you know, long dated in 2011, uh, that wouldn't have been terrible. It's really not until, you know, but if you if did I it in bought, 2021. Right. It's really not until not so you get fresh. to the bonds yeah. that you buy in 2021, yeah, where you're really hurting. And those bonds that were issued in 2021, like a 30-year bond issued in 2021 at those all-time lows of whatever it was, uh, 1.5%. You know, those things dropped uh, by 40% in value. Yeah. Tons. Um, so it's it's hard to... Because um, they have to drop to where their return is the same as a new bond. Exactly. Otherwise, nobody would buy it because it's not it has the same risk. It's Jim right. Rogers. Jim Rogers. Okay. Yeah. 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 Yep. Jim Rogers is a uh, he's a commodity oriented investor. Um, yes, the International Commodities Index. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Jim. I would say um, Jim Rogers is a lot smarter than me, but and a lot richer as well. But um, I didn't. You know, bond prices have really just responded to what short-term rates are doing, and um, interest rates are supposed to predict, uh, supposedly, you know, uh, the the economic models that that we still use that go back, you know, a hundred years as far as the relationship between interest rates and growth. Well. Um, Lower interest rates are supposed to mean lower future inflation. And if you just go back 40 years, you know, falling interest rates have uh, been met with falling inflation as well. It's not until this last like three years that that hasn't been the case. And really, we did see rates go up when inflation went up. Um, it So I do think that the bond market was very wrong as far as its ability to predict inflation in this last round. But anyway, the the reason that bond prices have gone up so much is literally just the mathematical result of the fact that short term rates continue to go lower and lower and lower. Um, So I don't I don't know. It's kind of hard to describe that as a bubble. Right. Okay. But I mean, it, it. I think and this was a big blooper on his part, I think what he was saying was this can't go on forever uh like short bonds mm-hmm. but he was wrong for so long that you would really not have any money left <laughs> there would be no dry powder for 2021 right yeah. if that's what you were doing 
Yeah. If you'd shorted bonds in um, July 2021, that would have been a great trade until um, October, November of last year is when rates reverse course. So yeah, shorting would have been a really good, shorting bonds would have been a really good trade from about July 2021 to- uh yeah october and no other time in the past 40 years yeah not not really right <laughs> yeah. so all right so what else is on your radar yeah so y'all are going to kind of get a glimpse maybe a sneak peek if you will of um just some of the things that are in my notepad and not a literal notepad because it's 2024 but almost like 2023 no, I, I literally <laughs> have a notepad <laughs> okay <laughs> um i have there's I something one, about the relationship. Digital. No, so the relationship between the pen and the ink and the paper. I go out of my way. You know why a lot of times I do it is that I find that the, that you really have to consolidate and distill your thoughts if you need to go through the entire effort of writing them out. Mm-hmm. And otherwise, because I can type so fast that I'll just, it'll, it's just junk. Anyway, that makes sense, actually. It's not just because I'm old. This is not an, an A. I went back. I went forward to the digital and then I went back because I need to consolidate. I so, There's okay, certain things get, that I write on a paper notebook as well. And I can't really say anything about screens because I still read a physical newspaper. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> dig it, bro. I've got not only do I do I read it, I write all. Yeah, underline shit as well. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Like, <laughs> I, And it stinks because then I have to go through like every article and mm-hmm. all the notes. And like I have Trump's hidden agenda, like eight different bullet points somewhere on a page in here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm never going to see it again. And they're all again. folded up. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So anyway. That's um, okay. Yeah. So tell us what's in your, your secret notes. Okay. Um, yeah. Secret notes. I like that even better. All right. So a um, couple of updates. So we briefly touched on this, but just to give you all an idea of what's going on in the rest of the world. So um, it came out in also in this last week that Japan and the UK are now in technical recessions. So that means two quarters of negative GDP. That's what the United States had back in the first two quarters of 2021. So we, uh, unless there was a revision that I'm not remembering, there actually was a, a negative two quarters there. Uh, so that brings the number of countries that have shrinking GDP as of the fourth quarter of 2023 to 14. So 14 countries, um, six countries saw GDP drop for the first time in Q4. So that would be if they have another drop, then they're in a technical recession. The one to look, you know, uh, a lot of these economies are, for lack of a better phrase, they don't matter. You know, like Finland is is in a recession. No offense to the Finns. Who cares? Um, Ireland is in a recession. I was going to say, are these G20 countries or, (laughs) I mean. Um, Ireland is in a recession. I love Ireland. I do care about that. Right. I care about Ireland. (laughs) I don't want them to be sad. Okay, okay. Although it's probably good for them because they need to get back to basics. Yeah. um, Yeah. And and Ireland is is in some ways just sort of a tax haven for U.S. corporations these days. But I just um, hated when they jacked up their debt, attracted tons and tons of workers from all over Europe and then went bankrupt. And then we're stuck with, a, you know, a lot of welfare people who didn't, you know, change the culture. Being Catholic, I kind of like the the culture. Mm-hmm, and um, and then then they had terrible economic times. So. Yeah. 
anyway, I feel like that's what they got for getting greedy. Unfortunately, they were on the periphery of Europe in the um, in the debt bubble they had that was tangential to ours uh, in the early two thousands. So they were they were in the they were a member of the pigs. Oh yes, yeah. But Portugal, wasn't Italy, Iceland Ireland. a pig? Iceland was a pig. The pigs had two eyes. Yeah, no. Oh, but Italy and Iceland, Ireland were the two eyes. Well, uh, Iceland might have been look. a pig, but they they just. I think they put that guy in jail and we're like, we repudiate this debt, which was correct. Like I say, yeah, Ireland gets what they deserve, off. but actually they probably, the people probably really don't know what's going on. They have no control over financial. We don't have any control over it. So no, how could don't. they possibly have any control over it? So yeah. I do feel bad for them. It is a really interesting case study. If, if anybody's listening and, and just kind of wants to dig any, any more into that, like the best method of solving a financial crisis, Ireland versus Iceland is a, is a very interesting case study. Is there um, is there stuff on that? Yeah, there is. Can you give um, me a link for the show notes? Yeah, it's been so long since I've uh, looked. So let me just write it. it. No, yeah, I'll find no, it. no, no, I'll I find, can it. find it. Um, yeah, I need to look at that again anyway. But um, yeah, one of us will find it, so the link will be available. Um, okay, so who cares about Finland and <laughs> Ireland? But what are the other Germany. countries? Germany, Japan. Germany is the yeah. So Germany and Japan and the UK, um, if for no other reason than they're a financial hub um, and responsible for funding a lot of the credit that gets issued in other countries, right? So even though UK has a tiny, tiny slice of the uh, global economy, and even though the UK doesn't host the world reserve currency anymore because of that network of the City of London banks that we did episodes about, mm-hmm. they're responsible for a lot of the offshore um, and cross-border credit that gets issued in, you know, developing countries or other developed markets. So it matters when the UK goes into a recession. It matters when Germany goes into a recession. It matters when uh, Japan goes into a recession. Uh, So we got three very large economies right there. Whether or not we ever see China actually say we're in a recession, therefore, you know, okay, they're obviously uh, in a pickle. Yeah, Um, they're sucking wind. Yeah, they're they're sucking wind. They're they're put it this way. They're doing all of the things that G20 countries do when their economy goes into a recession. So, I mean, there's, you know, proofs in the pudding. So um, given the global pressure on production or just the global lack of production, the global lack of demand, it's. There are kind of two directions that this could go. And when I say that the waters are muddy and that it's kind of hard to project right now or forecast right now, this is kind of what I mean. So if uh, if the United States economy went into recession, it's very, very likely that all the other developed markets are probably going to feel some pain, too. But is the same necessarily true in the reverse order? Well, the issue is that when everybody else goes into a recession and markets don't look so good, which is true of China and, you know, because their stock market hasn't had a new peak since uh, 2014. Um, it's true of Japan, um, which their stock market has steadily climbed since, you know, for the last 10 years, but it's not like the kind of returns you get in the US. And that was after two or three lost decades. Uh, but when this happens overseas, it's like, does this necessarily have to hit the United United States too. And there's a reason that it doesn't have to, and that's because capital flight. So you've got a global banking system and you've got all this credit that's going into China, going into Japan, going into the UK, whatever. Well, when things 
turned down in those other countries, capital finds its way to where it's safe. And so it goes to the U.S. And there's another example of this happening when it very much looked like the entire world could enter a depression. Um, and that was, uh, we mentioned it a few minutes ago, but the Asia financial crisis that broke in July 1997. So July 1997 is when the tiger economies, developing markets of East Asia broke. So they had been in a boom for the previous five, six, maybe seven years. And it was July 1997 when Thailand specifically finally said there's too much pressure on our currency, so we have to devalue. Uh, for countries outside the United States, that's a, that's a that's basically a debt crisis. If you're devaluing your currency, you're in a debt crisis. And so it very quickly spread to the other Asian tiger economies, Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, the Philippines, Korea. Um, it also affected demand in China. It also hit Japan, which at that point in uh, later on, so about a year later in 1998, Japan declared that it was in a recession for the first time in 23 years. In response, the United States cut rates. So Greenspan did a moderate interest rate cut in uh, the last quarter of 1998, I believe it was. Between July 1997 and October 2008, and probably even beyond, there was a lot of talk of the U.S. going into a recession just because of what was going on in the rest of the world, and it didn't materialize. What happened instead was all of that capital did what? It went out of Asia, and it went out of all these other places. It, there had been a huge capital boom in Asia at that point, so basically, you know, most of that strength just came as a wave, you know, out of the Asia tiger economy. Economies and into the West. Uh, but all of that money flowed back to the US and we got the ignition of a brand new stock market bubble. Uh, so, and this is another thing that I want to point out is that the S&P 500 during this time, this very uncertain, like 1997, 1998, was basically flat. It looked a lot like 2022. It looked a lot like 2022 up to a couple weeks ago or a week ago or whenever it was, when the S&P hit a new all-time high. The chart looked a lot like that. It corrected and it corrected. It wasn't a crash. It corrected and it corrected, and then it didn't go higher. It would have these rallies, but it wouldn't make a new all-time high. But then 1998, um, that ends, we're in a new bull market, the S&P marks a new all-time high, and then you're in the NASDAQ bubble for the next two years. It was a, it almost, it practically reset the economic cycle just because you had capital flowing out of Asia and into the United States. It was the flight to safety trade, and then the flight to safety trade made liquidity in the U.S., and then eventually that turned into risk on, and people started buying the crap out of tech stocks, and you had an, an extension of the economic cycle for another two or three years. Uh, so July 1997, recession didn't hit until the end of 2000. Uh, so yeah, you've got another three and a half-ish years of, of growth there. That could very well happen. <laughs> so, you know? I mean, just given the magnitude of, of just China lowering rates, mm -hmm. is that enough to do that? So the foreign, I'm glad you asked that because the foreign direct investment flows to China have been negative, which means uh, money is on that flowing out of China. And that's happened this year for the first time since uh, they joined the WTO in the 90s. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. So these are the first capital outflows on net that we've seen from China in all this time. And because so that's the numbers are so big that yeah. it could be enough to move us, I would think. 
And then the mm-hmm. other thing I would wonder about, I'm not uh, up on it, is what our you know, trade balances, if we have a lot of exports, then it would matter if people were unable to consume. But if we don't export that much or if we export stuff that's absolutely necessary, you know, just a continuing thing like people's software or whatever, they have to keep using it. Mm-hmm. What What's your thinking on that having an impact like on the contagion of other countries, even if we could be insulated? Um, as far as the trade balance goes, I don't look at that as a predictor so much as that you'll see a response to it in um, in the fallout. So, but it doesn't contribute to a contagion like our trading partners are in recession, therefore we go into recession because we can't sell them anything. Oh yeah, sure. So whatever whatever percentage of your economy is, uh, whatever percentage of your economy exists to export components to China for manufacturing. Um, and if China is no longer shipping to Germany or they're no longer shipping to India because there's not enough uh, demand or whatever, then yeah, absolutely. That at the margin is going to affect your economy. The question is, is um, that has to be balanced again. That has to be balanced against the effect of the capital flow. Uh, against the financial sector, right? So the the net effect of capital flows from the financial sector is economic capacity gets into gear. Uh, but that's that's just normally what happens when you have an upswing in in credit. So if the but if the downfall of demand in China is so huge and imp- impacts U.S. exporters so much, then maybe that credit impulse would not be enough to save the U.S. economy. Uh, but we've been a net importer of goods for a really long time. And that same situation was true at the end of the nineties in this, you know, situation that we just, um, you know, we were, we were definitely a net importer at that time as well. Um, so I, my sense insulate us. Yeah. Yeah. So my sense is that the effective capital flows would overwhelm you know, whatever demand shortfall you would have from those trading partners going into recession. Okay. I want to ask you one more thing and then you can go on to your next point. But um, you said something about failing. You kind of equated production and consumption, which sounded very Keynesian to me. Oops, sorry about that. So, (laughs) I mean, I think you said the problem was a lack of production, you know, as if that's the driver for recession. And I'm not arguing with you. I'm just saying, like, is that, is that what you is that what you mean? Like, is it a production problem? Because I, I don't usually think of it as a production problem. But can you did you mean that? And what did you mean? Yeah. Um, what the reason that so what's going on in China right now? And uh, if you just look at the United States last crisis, um, yeah, production is what is ultimately what drives economic um, activity. Um, it's ultimately investment as well that drives economic activity. So if you disaggregate GDP uh, into com- into consumption and investment components, the correlation between investment and G- like overall GDP growth, even though investment is a relatively tiny portion. Uh, so Keynesians will often say this. They'll say, uh, well, investment is only, you know, 15% of the GDP. So how can you say that investment is so important? Consumption, on the other hand, is 70%. So that must be the most important. Well, if you if you just do the statistical analysis on it um, in terms of which one has a has a better predictive correlation, uh, the investment cycle turns down before everything else. 
So yes. the investment cycle okay. leads the overall business cycle. Uh, you'll see invest. You'll see the growth rate in investment fall, 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 and then go negative uh, before you'll see a recession or a fall in overall GDP. And, right. that, and do you think that's just because industry is smarter than they're just get ahead of it? They know to get ahead of it. I, um, well, they know that they have enough inventory. I assume. Yeah. I, so I think that um, I think part of it is uh, so let's break it down half and half. I'd say half of it is the fact that uh, businesses have to be forward looking, whereas consumption is now. And I hate the the division of economies into those components in the first place, uh, just right. just as a side note, because okay. we're all producers and we're all consumers. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's not like that's not um, that's not like that's not, woo- it's your... not like a woo woo thing. It's just a real you know, you're you're not making a philosophical argument. You're just pointing out that that's true. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we all are, uh, consume, we're consumers at home and we're producers at work kind of thing. Uh, but businesses have to forecast demand. And so they're going to be the first ones to know just for the simple fact that they're thinking about it when the consumer, um, you know, the, the business owner in their role as a business owner is thinking about the future. Whereas the same person in their role as a consumer probably isn't as much, you know? <laughs> right. Um, so it's like we we both have the same mind or we both have two different minds kind of living. We have a consumption mind and we have a business mind. Unless, you know, I don't really, um, I'm probably not as uh, forward looking about business type stuff as somebody who actually runs a brick and mortar shop and has to order inventory and things like right. that. Signs long term contracts for yeah. commodities. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's, so you really do have to look at people whose entire livelihood is staked on, you know, what the growth rate and demand is going to be in a year. That reminds me of William Engdahl, which I might have mentioned to you, made a point which I did never really dug into, but he said the best predictor of economic activity is steel, is the price yeah. of steel. Yeah, steel and copper are good ones. Um, and then and it makes so much sense. He's like that. If you are not building your, you know, so I'm sure China had that, a hu- you know, that huge building bubble and then everything was built and too much was built and they probably had a total bust in steel demand, you know, a couple of years ago. Yep. Uh, they have. Yeah, they do. And and then the other thing that's happening with China's effect on the rest of the world is that they're they're exporting in, infl- or they're exporting deflation. So in the fallout of the great financial crisis, China decided that it was going to borrow a crap ton of money and put it into all of these real estate development projects. Um, you've seen pictures of these. They're cities to nowhere and apartment complexes that nobody lives in. Yes, yes. Um, that's what they did in the fallout of the great financial crisis. That actually created demand for base commodities, which was, even though it wasn't great for the long-term trajectory of China, it managed to boost demand in other countries as well. So, and and uh, not least of which the U.S., because we had our shale boom and then China needs a lot of oil so that they can build their real estate boom. <laughs> so, right. you know, it's not entirely bad for us. I think that's contributing to why oil prices are going down just because China's demand is going yeah, bust. Absolutely, I do. And I think that I think in general, there is a lack of even in the United States where there is no recession, the 
indicators that are specific to manufacturing, things like manufacturers, new orders and employment growth in manufacturing and things like that. The indicators that are specific to manufacturing have been in recession territory for the last year and a half. And the same is very much true in most of the industrialized world, especially China, where, you know, their economy is falling is falling apart on on all you know, uh, aspects, but even in the U S that, and that mean, what I was trying to get at there is the manufacturing demand is where you would see the consumption of the raw commodities. So if the manufacturing demand is falling off, then that totally lines up with what we've seen out of commodity prices in the last year, year and a half, which is that they've been going down. I mean, it's really ever, ever since the, the initial boom, when Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, it's almost as if oil prices have been on a downtrend really ever since then. I mean, they hit 110 in March 2022. And it's, you know, we're down to oscillating between 70 and 75 or something like that. Um, Yikes. So, So yeah. Are you firmly not in the soft landing camp still? Soft landing camp. I am... Here's here's where I am. I am in the soft... I am in the hard landing camp until the... uh, I wonder how many months do we have until six? So if we get to August 2024 and the Fed still has not cut rates in response to deteriorating economic data or something, then I'm probably going to have to join the soft landing camp. Um, hmm. But for about the next six months, I'm still in the hard landing camp. And and the reason hmm. for that is that um, this pattern that we see in interest rate spreads, so the inversion of the yield curve, yes. when you get really close to the recession, what tends to happen is the rates that are within a year out on that yield curve. So you're talking about four week treasury bills, uh, 12 week or 13 week technically, um, and then all the way up to 12 months. So we're talking about uh, treasury bills, and that's anything from zero days all the way up to 12 months. These rates start to become inverted themselves. So the rate at the end of the year, right, just 12 months out is lower than the four week. And that is when you're really in the, uh, you know, like whatever, whatever meter, if you're in a, if you have a meter coloring system and you have like yellow, orange, red, like you're at least in orange, but you're probably encroaching on red at that point. Um, because what the bond market is just yesterday, uh, the federal treasury auctioned off, uh, however many billions of dollars of, um, six month treasury bills and the rate that the bond market bid for them was it, it basically implied one rate cut. So Fed funds is 5.33 right now, and the bond market bought those up for 5.1. So that's one rate cut. And so the bond market is, you know, so bond investors are basically saying, yeah, there's going to be cuts in at least six months. And in this, and again, just because of the pattern that we've followed where the inversion is, you know, first it's 10 year, two year. So it's way out versus two years out. And then maybe it's two year, one year. Well, now it's inside of the year. So the bond market is is giving very strong indications that there is going to be rate cuts. Hmm. And in general, the bond market, you know, we could say that this is because, oh, inflation is coming down. But, you know, with these auctions being the way that they are, this really doesn't happen outside of, you know, cutting rates in response to bad economic data. So that's why I say, uh, you know, there there was just a six month auction that very 
live indicator of where the uh, smart money in the world thinks rates are headed is downward uh, within the next six months. So if we get to that point and we still haven't seen it, then I'm probably going to say we're in a fresh new economic expansion. And it very well could be, it very well could go the way of the dot-com bubble in uh, 2000, 2001. But it doesn't matter if you're at, in an economic uh, expansion. It doesn't matter if you think the fundamentals are good or if it's just a, a bubble or whatever. It's an, it's an expansion and if stocks are going up and if you're not invested in them, then you're losing. Right. So, you know, it does matter. Um, so, yeah, I would say I'm in uh, camp hard landing for about the next six months. And then if nothing indicates for that time period that anything is going sour, then I would have to, you know, say I'm wrong and and kind of reverse. How does the election year shape your expectations for the chances of that? of like coming into August and be like, wow, nothing happened. I mean, I don't think that, you know, they're like, well, like you were saying, there's political pressure. Well, they want to Democrats elected. So Powell can't let it do But I, I don't, you know, I feel like the powers that be are so completely beyond the parties that they don't care. You know, Democrats don't, there's no such thing. So yeah. what do you think? Um, what, what do your, what does your spidey sense tell you? Yeah, I don't think the election is going to play a role in the i don't think the that the election is playing a role in the money market or in uh like in the in the money market in the in the bond market and by the bond market i mean uh the market for privately issued bonds you know mm -hmm. like apple and uh home depot and any other company that borrows money i don't think the election is going to have an effect on that so the the source of uh, liquidity for American business, let's call it, I don't think the election is going to have a big effect on that. Um, I do think that Jerome Powell is probably before he goes to bed at night, he probably thinks about his job prospects if Donald Trump gets reelected. <laughs> but I oh wow, yeah, I mean that's that's putting you know putting the rubber on the road, yeah. I got you. Yeah. Um, but is he truly autonomous? Is he not an autocrat? Is Jerome Powell autonomous? Is he an autocrat? I like, is his as in, personal position... As in, does he get position, to make his own decision? Yeah. Is he that powerful personally that does his to actual decide? desire yeah. to be in that role change the outcome? Two, okay, I'm thinking of two different questions. So is is the is the question, does Jerome Powell get to decide himself what he does with interest rates? Or is it, does Jerome Powell get to decide? Or are you asking, does Donald Trump actually get to pick the Fed chair? Oh, no, I'm asking, does Jerome Powell actually get to decide what happens with rates? Yeah, he may be he does. run out of town on a rail the day after, mm -hmm. but he does actually get up, go yep. to work, and get out his little green crayon and writes the number down on a piece of paper. Yes, I absolutely believe he does because half, if not more, of his uh, FOMC committee, um, half, if not more, of his, you know, Federal Open Market Committee, these are the people who meet every, whatever it is, six weeks, and yeah, they decide, you know, they what, disagree what, what the funds are going to be. Yeah. yeah, so half of his committee has disagreed with him every step of the way, at least. Um, there, are, there are people on this board who are, you know, like the reserve chairs of San Francisco, um, who is always going to be somebody who thinks more like Janet Yellen than who thinks more like Milton Friedman. Uh, you know, there's Lael Brainerd, who is not in that role anymore. But when she was, she was putting pressure on him. He has people in 
on his, you know, sitting around his own table who are saying, no, 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 this is too high. This is too high. This is too high. We're going to break something. We have to worry about unemployment, blah, blah, blah. And the entire step of the way, he said, no, rates are going higher. Rates are going higher. And I will, um, I'll add a, I'll send you a link to, um, a chart that I put in, I think it was the November mm-hmm. uh, outlook that I did, but it visualized just how wrong all of the different indicators of future rate paths were. So what what the bond market thought, uh, what the uh, what the summary of economic projections from the Fed members themselves over time, and then what the interest rate futures markets saw as the path for rates. Jerome Powell got his way. He told you rates are going to go up. Rates are Mm going to go up. I don't fucking care if you think they're only going to go up to two and a half percent. Guess what? They're going to five. So buckle up, mother, you know. (laughs) Um, So, so yeah, I think and and me myself before this rate hiking cycle, I was very uh, personally skeptical of the idea that the Federal Reserve chair had any say over interest rates whatsoever, even Fed funds. I was very skeptical of that view. And this, the experience of the last two years has completely changed that. I mean, the idea that the Fed chair, yeah, go ahead. When that repo thing was happening in November Mm -hmm. 2019 or October 2019, I observed that the interest rates were at 2% and we were in an 11-year expansion, which I told you, and I wondered how they would do it, but I was like, they have to get interest rates up to like 7%. Mm -hmm. So... And then he did that, right? So I thought of it as a plan, and that is what he did. Do you, does, are you fine with that and still thinking that it was, that he has that power? Do you think anyone, he's on the same page as other people who, or he understood that or what? Or do you think that I just randomly thought that? I mean, it can't be random because it was true. Interest rates had to be reset. They had to be reset. So they were. Right. I mean, or do you think ZERP was like a real possibility? Well, um, in 2019, there was also a paper that was put out. It was a partnership between BlackRock and one of the former Federal Reserve governors. I'm sure you've heard about it. Um, It was I want to say it was Christopher Waller, but I no, that one that doesn't sound right either. Anyway, it was a. it was BlackRock in partnership with one of the better known former chair uh, chairs of one of the Federal Reserve Banks. It might have been one of the guys who was shit canned for insider trading. It might have been one Ooh. of those guys. 2019, they put out a paper uh, that said it was all about going direct. It, not a not a paper paper, but a white paper. Yes. It was all about going direct. I it, remember it that. Said, yeah. It said in an ex economic crisis, and this is the same year as COVID, but says nothing about a pandemic, of course weird. Uh, But it said in the next economic crisis, what we're going to have to do in order to generate inflation, because this is coming on the heels of uh, in 2019, there was a Bloomberg Business Week article that said the death of inflation. So everybody thought inflation was dead. Um, So this is coming on the heels of we've done QE for 10 years and we can't get the inflation we want, blah, 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 blah. And I, I assume the underlying incentive is we have to start inflating away some debt. Right. Because we have this yeah. stack of debt that's built up and we have, you know, we have to inflate this away somehow. Well, plus, I mean, there's no more reason for the Fed or Keynesianism or anything if you have 2% interest rates going into a recession. Right. Yeah. Because what? Are, yeah. Because you don't have well, any What's room. your point? What's yeah. your purpose of existence if it isn't to 
drop the interest rate by 5%. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they put this out and if you'd read it at the time, that it would be really interesting to to be in that mindset because you would see COVID happen and you'd say, holy crap, the hidden part of going direct and getting inflation up is we're going to have a pandemic, <laughs> right? Yeah. Which is exactly what you're saying. Um, on the other hand, Jerome Powell didn't do it's it's funny because I first I heard about this because I was listening to somebody else talk about it and they and they were talking about the plan and how Jerome Powell was kind of playing uh playing along um and he was just following in the steps of this going oh, direct thing. But the plan was going direct and he didn't. So he is Volcker because yeah. Volcker stopped them from going back to the gold standard. Right. In my opinion, like the real answer would have been, let's go back to the gold standard. So what he did was he saved the system. Yeah. Um, however, am I putting words in your mouth? Um, yeah. Well, Volker is a I think that Volker could have been part of a plan because in Volker's underling role, what what I'm getting at is that I don't think J-Pow is part of the plan. Um, but I think that Volker could have been because he himself was partially responsible for going off the gold standard in 71. I, yeah, I'm so. definitely mixing things up. So what I, but what I, but my big thing about Reagan and Volcker are that they that saved ten the years after they closed the lo, lo, ten years after they closed the gold window, we had hyperinflation. Mm -hmm. So obviously that was a problem, and the right answer should have been go back to the go gold back. standard, right. in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But they saved the system as it was by by raising interest rates, yeah. and then I uh, so. It would be the opposite to say the people going direct are not about going backwards. They're about going forwards to a new paradigm that they wanted. And he he didn't do that either. He saved the system from his position. He wasn't yeah. the guy who let it go down. Yeah. So the the policy prescription, if if I go back and read going if I go back and read going direct, the policy prescription would have been let inflation run, let inflation run, let inflation run. And Powell was resistant initially for you know call it those first six seven eight months when inflation was you know breaking records broke a 10-year record then a 20-year record then a 30-year record it took them a long time to start saying okay we're gonna start raising rates but then they did and they and they went way further than anybody expected them to when you think about the bond market and the uh interest rate futures curve you know these are the banks uh, the the biggest the global money center banks of the world play in these markets. These are the markets that were manipulated by the LIBOR scandal back in the early two thousands. So, so is the yield curve inverted for your, that entire time? Like their the, expectations? Yield curve were did, that, uh, didn't invert until I guess it was November twenty twenty two. But I'm just um, saying, if they didn't believe him, yeah, they didn't. No, they didn't. Like nobody believed him. Yeah, nobody believed. Nobody believed Very that Powell was going to keep. That is keep super duper interesting. Yeah, so going direct would have said, "This is our perfect opportunity. Let the inflation run wild." We could have, you know, they could have told us we just won a war on COVID. We had two rounds of double digit inflation after World War II. In the inflation rate got up to twenty percent. 
Partially, it was the relaxation of price controls. So the inflation that was already uh, baked in from the war, once you let price controls go, they could actually reflect reality. But then there was another one a couple of years later, just from the sheer ridiculous amount of credit expansion that was done to finance that war. They could have said... Americans, you know, we just were Europe. Yeah, whoever. right. We, we won the war because it was a war. COVID. It was World War Three. Yeah. It was World War Three on COVID. You have to live with this. Eat it. We have to inflate away that you don't just eat this inflation. No, it's transitory. It's transitory. It's transitory. The Fed and the Treasury can piss on your shoe and tell you it's raining for a really, really long time. <laughs> and they have a lot of Twitter blue checks who will back them up and a mm-hmm. lot of blue voters who will back them up when they do so. And a lot of, you know, red voters who think that they're red pilled, but they're really not because whatever you want to call it. Right. So they have a lot of people, you know, who will just back this up. I truly think that Jerome Powell hmm. was faced with, I, I think wow. that if he knew about that, he was playing along for a while, but something happened either he was not playing along initially or he was playing along initially but then something happened where he looked at okay this isn't your legacy it's mine and i have to do what's right for my name and ultimately self-interest is the most powerful force you know especially in finance it's the most powerful force in the world has the fed chair ever died in office yeah, Benjamin Strong died in, oh. um, yeah. He was 19... long serving, was he not? Very long serving. Yeah, he was, I think he was the, oh, well, he he had kind of a pedigree. I think he was um, Treasury Secretary and then he was Fed Chair and, yeah. I just wonder, like, when, when you go afoul of the plan, oh. <laughs> you could die. But the going direct thing, it, it didn't seem to me to be, it seems like such a high level thing that it's like one of those things where they float it and then it's just too far. It's just mm-hmm. too far, but it'll be back, I would assume. But anyway, very interesting. So what else is on your, um, that was a very good tidbit about Jerome Powell because it speaks to the possibility you know, the the reality of competing forces. So, you know, I think that what are the powers that be control the world? Not in a way that is a consequence of voting. <laughs> like voting does oh, yeah. not have consequences, but but there are competing powers and interests and institutions. So I, I want to hear more of your other stuff that you have there because we are going a little bit over. I'm okay until my people come home. Um, okay, semi collegiate says: Is there a prediction of the maximum amount of inflation that can be spent into the economy? It seems like there are trillions of dollars in some vehicle out of sight. New money printing stops. I mean, I would say that the money, the pent up money in in this world right now is our high interest rates and strong dollar versus China, for example. So I don't know if that helps semi-collegiate, but is there, so I, I would say, I would wonder if his question is more like, so you know the idea if the U.S. stopped being the reserve currency we would have crazy hyperinflation because, I mean, maybe there are competing ideas about that, but I think that's just like a natural thing. It would just all come rushing back or if like Saudi mm-hmm. Arabia stops holding our debt or whatever. I don't know if they still even do, but... Um, they do. Okay, they've so... Been in, but they've been a net seller of U.S. debt since 2012. And they're borrowing now themselves. Yeah. So I don't mm-hmm. know how that flips. But anyway, if if money rushes in, what do, maybe what do you think would be... I mean, would... 
is there a pent-up hyperinflation that they could trigger and do that direct thing? Uh, direct, going I've, direct again? Yeah, so with, I really, um, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to be mainstream or mainstream analogous or mainstream parallel, but, but the fear, uh, but the, the least, uh, the 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 smallest probability fear for me is hyperinflation because right. if you look okay, at great. other cases of hyperinflation that have happened throughout history there's two pieces there it's not only that you printed an, it's not only that you printed too much money it's that you printed too much money way too much in relation to your economy's productive capacity right, right? so right. you've it, got a dead economy and you're just yep. and you're just going cash and going on and top going. of it yeah yeah mm-hmm. okay. um so, so yeah not worried about that. So what what else you got there? I don't want to miss anything. Oh, um, do you want to know what the size of the United States, since we're on this subject, do you want to know what the size and scope of the United States debt is for the next uh, 10 years? <laughs> so it's <laughs> over, it's probably 33 trillion right now, right? Yep. Yeah. So uh, we're at, so marketable treasury debt, that's bonds that are held by people that are not government agencies. So governments, the government does this stupid thing where they have these intergovernmental borrowings. The Social Security yeah. Trust is invested in treasury yeah. securities. That's debt that the U.S. is going to have to pay, but it's not included in the total marketable debt. Because so they 30, can renege on it. I get. Yeah, I guess they could. I mean, yeah. I don't have bonds that say payable when you turn 65. That's true. Yeah, they could. Yeah. So in theory, they could. Uh, yeah, that's true. Um, so, yeah, that's actually I should an interesting have those bonds. You should have. We all should. We don't. Yeah, they should issue the bonds when you pay for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they should just be non-transferable zeros that mature on your 65th birthday. We could probably do a maybe a 20, maybe a 20, 25 minute thing on just what happened to the what happened to the Social Security Trust back in the 80s. Um or maybe it was the early, I don't remember exactly, but whenever, when they made that decision is basically they, the decision was to take the treasury, uh, to take the social security surplus because for a long time there were more inflows than outflows. So they came up with this scheme where they could spend the inflows by buying, I'm sure you already know this. I know the um, Irish. Do you know who Martin Feldstein is? Uh, yeah, I've heard that name. He was to... the he was Reagan's economic advisor and he was my economics teacher at Harvard. No shit. I'm not going to date myself by saying when that was happening, but let's say shortly after that was happening. And he and I just remember being at Harvard, which my father's like, that is a completely socialist institution. You're going to come out a communist yeah. and learning. I took economics and they were teaching me economics. I was like, they would say, like, this is what's actually happening. And it's a policy decision. They ben. weren't like making stuff up. They're like, this will create like deadweight loss, but it's a policy decision. And I remember him saying like, it's a complete farce. It's, it's just uh, IOUs and stuff. Like, because that was the thing. They were borrowing from it and it was illegal and it was obviously bankrupting the thing and blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. But I just, I do remember learning. I think he was the guy who oversaw it maybe. Interesting. It was his Um, thing. It was definitely his thing. So keep talking. I wonder what his relationship is with David Stockman because David Stockman. Oh, I liked him. um, Yeah, was the was the management and budget director? I think. Oh yeah. And he just wrote a book called uh, "Trump's War on Capitalism." I need to read it. Um, Nice. Yeah. I wonder if he would come on my show. 
Yeah, you should ask. I, I would he, love to. I don't um, have any clout at all, at all but I'll uh, maybe just tag yeah, him ask on Twitter him. a bunch of times. <laughs> Hold on. Okay, policy. Okay, let me just see because I don't want to be wrong because it's been a very, very long time. Structural Reform of Social Security by Sounds Martin like- Feldstein in 2005. He... Uh, well, he doesn't seem to be against it. All right. Anyway, keep talking. I'll have to yeah. find some resources and include them because I can't remember. Yeah. Um, I'll I'll send you the link to a. There was a Soho Forum debate about whether or not the Social Security program would ever increase the United States budget deficit. And that explains in depth, that's Gene Epstein, and he explains in depth how all of that happened. Um, but it's in the midst of like an hour and a half debate. So I think your your crowd would probably love that. I mean, I, Ooh, I enjoyed give it. Give me so. links. I'll put them in there. Yeah. So, okay. Okay. So tell me about the debt. All right. So um, what I've started to pay attention to is and I honestly can't believe that it's taken me i've been studying economics since i was uh 20 21 and it's really taken me this long to kind of get my head around some of these indicators of liquidity and things like that but one of the key things that uh that kind of makes a difference in the money market um and i've been kind of i don't want to say berating but for lack of a better word kind of ranting about how important the money market is um in different posts that i've done on social media lately um so a lot of a lot of my a lot of the things and you know the interest rate white papers and stuff is focused on uh is focused on money markets because this is a really crucial segment of the financial system and it's ultimately where if i'm going to if i'm going to fund apple for the next 3 months so like apple is on is on the street and they're which Apple is not really accurate right now because they borrowed a shit ton during the pandemic when rates were were really low, so they won't have to again for a long time. But let's just say that it is Apple, right? So they're on the street and they're looking for money and they want to issue like a three-month note. We call that commercial paper. Well, that's got to get funded in the money market first. So for whatever bond dealer to buy that uh, 90-day debt from Apple so that they can do their operations for the next 90 days until that thing matures and then they'll roll over their debt again, well, the dealer who is buying that paper and then selling it to whoever else wants it, they have to fund that in the money market first. They have to go out and borrow it from somewhere. And so that, that's why the money market is so, you know, a money market panic will make or break your economy for however much time. I mean, that's, uh, that's 1997, that's 1907, that's 2007. And there's other examples that don't include the, the number seven, I promise. Um, but, but yeah, that's just, that's kind of how it works. So um, in light of that, how much is the United States actually going to need to borrow? How much is the treasury actually going to need to yeah. borrow in the next uh, couple, couple different metrics? Okay. So in the next quarter, um, or excuse me, the next quarter, uh, basically by June, the Uh-oh. U.S. government will have to borrow, I think, hold on, let me look at this. So not the next quarter, next two quarters. Now they're right. Uh, no, 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 excuse me. No, this is just by the end of Q1 2024. The United States government That's will like need a to borrow. Uh, yeah, yeah, about a month and 10 days. We'll have to borrow $3.243 trillion. The total annual deficit, how does that work? The total annual deficit is $1.5 trillion. 
how, why do you need to borrow 3.2 yeah. in a single well, quarter? Rolling shit over, right? Rolling shit over. It's three financings. Exactly. Oh my right? gosh. At yeah. rates three times the. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Well, there's your gotcha. That's when yep. the banks really own us. Yeah. yeah. No, it's all fun oh and games God. until rates go up. So, yep. so if, so, I mean, that's where it gets sticky that the Fed is a government entity because Man, now, to the extent that they care about the same things, Powell is highly incented to lower rates. Mm-hmm. And there, and there's an idea that uh, that I've they finally, just buy their own. Just buy, yeah, just buy. Honestly, the funding statements, the uh, financial statements that the Treasury Department puts out, they literally say, "Think of the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury as a consolidated balance sheet." I, like I've read oh, that. Wow. On, yeah. So when I say the Fed is not independent, which you know your audience is not going to have any problem with, but mainstream, you know, blue pill people or otherwise, yeah. You know, oh, the Fed is independent. They have a, you know, it's all it's all segmented. No, no. It's I'm with you. I don't themselves. think it's private. <laughs> But yeah, it's yeah, it's definitely government entity mm-hmm. to the extent, you know, there is any separation. OK, wow. So so what's the bottom line there? Like, what would you say, you know, how much new debt are we going to have at the end of this year? One and a half trillion, except for that, it's going to be at a much, much higher rate. Yes. Yeah, so Already? Be... Like how much do, were we bar- we were borrowing super long term, though, right? Smartly or not? Well, unfortunately, the problem with the financial system and the way that it works today is that the street really, really prefers treasury bills, right? So it would have been really smart if Janet Yellen uh, didn't have the market pressures. She could have borrowed $5 trillion or, you know, $3 trillion or whatever at 1.5% for 30 years in, you know, like we said earlier, July 2021. Yeah. The problem is, is that, again, the street likes T-bills. You know, they don't want long dated paper. Okay, so the treasury, the the rate would have gone way up, like the yield curve would have steepened. I well, she was pushing all that up because you have to pay them to take it. I wish I knew exactly what would have happened. But I think that if you put all of that, yeah, I think if you put all of that, I mean, how could you not at the 10, 20 and 30, then, yeah, I think it would have driven rates way up. Um. But it would have been better at that time when it was 1.5. Right. So, like, yeah. if rates had gone up a full triple, 2%. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're been, at 3.5. Triple then even would have been four and a half at 30 years would have been fine. Yeah. So. Uh, okay. Yeah. So the, so the issue is, is that, uh, you know, we, the U.S. has a financial system that is essentially built around its debt. Right. And so. The Treasury kind of has to take cues from the market. So when they decide. Uh, how much debt they're going to issue. And well, they don't really get to decide how much. When they decide at what tenors uh, or what maturities they're going to issue the debt, they actually have to put out a survey to uh, the primary dealers. So this is that list of 26, 27 some odd um, counterparties that are basically the biggest bond dealers in the financial system. Right. And these are the people who the Treasury and the Fed deal with primarily. That's why they're called primary. So it has to put out a survey and ask, you know, what what would you like to see, honestly? You know, what would you bid for on these different maturities of U.S. debt? And it decides based on that. So the Treasury... Wow. It's like J.P. Uh, Morgan, are you talking about? Yeah, like, J.P. Morgan. Right. Um, uh, so some other ones would be... Um, 
gosh, why am I blanking? I think Lehman on? used to be a big Morgan one. Stanley. Lehman was a primary dealer. Bear Stearns yeah. was a primary dealer. Um, you, Merrill Lynch was one. Now they're part of Bank of America. I think I remember Sherman. So. What was the Sherman Sterling's law firm? But Shearson Lee Shearson was not yeah might have uh, been Shearson, which was I think bought by Shearson City. Lehman. Yeah, and then yeah. Oh, because I worked at Citibank. That's probably yep. why. Uh, Smith okay. Barney. Cool. Smith Barney yeah. was also a dealer. They were yeah. bought by City. Um, so yeah, all the basically the the big invest Goldman Sachs, um, Deutsche Bank is one. I think Credit Suisse was one too. So uh, now it would just be the securities dealer arm of UBS is one. So yeah, uh, the big the usual suspects, right? So yeah, so the issue is is that. The Treasury has to issue this short data debt to keep the bond market happy, uh, which kind of right. blows. Okay. <laughs> All right. So now we <laughs> have this problem. I mean, what do you see is the significance of this problem? What I see is, so I've been studying. So you have more pegs to give us, right? You have more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what I, yeah. So the, the, the issue with that is that we're moving into what economists have called fiscal dominance. So it's essentially whenever you reach a point of deficit spending where the treasury is just responsible for a significant amount of the demand and the spending in the economy. And uh, what fiscal dominance means is that the Fed only gets to make its monetary policy as long as the bond market is not uh, falling off a cliff. And um, so any disruption, and we, we kind of already saw that in 2020, um, all that really had to happen for the Fed to to launch QE and take rates to zero was um, the street didn't want 10-year bonds that had been floating around the market for a while. We call those off the run. So as soon as a treasury security is issued, it's on the run. But it's, but the second a new treasury security yes, is issued, it. it's off the run. So all that had to happen in 2020 for the Fed to jump in with the bazooka was for the off the run securities, for those off the run treasury bonds and bills and notes, uh, mostly bonds and notes, not not so much bills, to not have much of a market for them, to not have much demand for them. And the Fed stepped in and, and it was the same thing with mortgage-backed securities. So the older mortgage-backed securities weren't trading. And so the Fed jumped in with the bazooka. So once you get this high debt load and the United States has to refinance these huge numbers, $3.2 trillion a quarter, just a function, and then the Fed's in a much tighter spot. Um, then the Fed has to, we were talking about Jerome Powell's legacy uh, however many minutes ago. Well, then he has to really contend with, um, is my decision on interest rates going to completely break the government? Because at that point, Jerome Powell is ultimately the one who decides, at least partially, does the U.S. government budget deficit overwhelm how much is or does the spending overwhelm how much is collected in taxes and does the interest bill overwhelm how much is collected in taxes? Because if, you know, the U.S. could, in theory, they could borrow at half a percent if the Fed just cut rates to, to uh, 50 basis points and they could just issue T-bills all day long and just keep rolling them over. So the more debt you build up, the more you have this issue of, well, the Fed can act and they can fight inflation, but only as long as the bond market behaves. And that's why I keep coming back to this tension between, you know, a couple years ago, 
Jerome Powell decided what rates were going to do, or at least I think, decided what rates were going to be like on the basis of he was butting up against his legacy. Is he going to be Arthur Burns or is he going to be uh, Paul Volcker? Well, he wasn't in a Ben Bernanke situation at that point. Um, if there's a problem in which there's not enough money in the system to finance this U.S. debt, again, $3.2 trillion in a single quarter, well, then he could go back to a mindset of, well, shit, now I'm in the Bernanke situation, and am I going to be the courage to act, or am I going to be, you know, I was nowhere to be found and everybody hates me because I caused the global depression or whatever. Um, so, so that's 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 why this uh, debt thing kind of, uh, that's where it comes into play. And then the other piece of that is just how much the uh, government is responsible for the spending that gets done in the economy now. Um, so I, I truly believe that part of that fiscal dominance equation is the more uh, the more spending that the federal that the federal government is responsible for as a percentage of your gross domestic product, I think the higher that that gets, the more in danger you are of that uh, of that type of interplay between the money and and the tre- the monetary and the treasury, the Fed and the treasury. So, um, the U.S. deficit is going to be between five and a half percent and six and a quarter percent of GDP from now through twenty thirty four. So about a 20, a little over a 20th of uh, the total spend is going to be um, treasury deficits between now and 2034. And that's using the Congressional Budget Office projections. So that's just given current law. Uh, current and that policy. has a cumulative impact, right? Like the more interest and more deficits that you build up, yeah, so that's why I think um, for 2024, it's estimated to be uh, so. Well, yeah, so that's why I think it fluctuates, um, and that's even even if the law doesn't change, the deficit can change because your interest bill increases. Yeah, yep. I want before we wrap, and I've got to wrap. I want to okay. understand and address semi collegiate's questions. Okay, About so. Gold? Yeah. So what the he says, golden. he's trying to explain why there's pent up money that we don't acknowledge. Oh, so, yeah. Several the, owners. so let me just pull up his stuff. He says derivatives and selling of debt means that any collateral can have many investment vehicles and lots of insurance uh, and dollars tied up and possibly out of sight. Hidden money to be spent on black projects or maybe hidden for future emergencies a FASB 56, there is weird legislation like this, requires all government contractors to be hidden for national security. Any money relations with government are hidden since 2017 or so. Hidden money is important because CBDC makes fractional reserve lending difficult. I think that's where that um, going direct thing may come in. Extra money is useful then for emergencies. That time would be the beginning of outright technocracy. So how do you react yeah. to that? Um, I, I would honestly, I would have to dig a lot. I would have to, I would have to try and quantify what could possibly be hidden in those government contractor pockets. But you're not worried um, about, you know, there's a hundred trillion dollars, hundred trillion dollars of derivatives out there, and something bad happens, and we're, you know, totally hollowed out. Like, you know, there's that's a fear that people have, and I'm not sure it's because I really don't understand how it works. I don't know if that fear is just a consequence of how huge the number is or mm-hmm. if it really is are we really just balancing on the pin of a hat out of a pin. Yeah. Um okay, so I have a yeah, 
couple, and I'll try to keep it short. Yeah, that's got to be the short answer. Yeah, um, so you, you got to be you got to be careful about the the derivatives number because that is a notional amount. So a hundred trillion dollars of derivatives contracts is uh, that is the total outstanding notional value in a derivatives arrangement. And this is what I do for a living, so I'm not bullshitting you. Um, literally, I do this every single day. Um, in a derivative arrangement, the principal, uh, which is what I just referred to as the notional, they're the same thing. The notional value is never exchanged. Okay. So if I have uh, the, the, one of the most common types of derivatives is, is called an interest rate swap. Mm -hmm. And the notional value of that contract could be a hundred million dollars. The actual sum total of cash flows on that contract right. could be as low as 50 million. Right. It's right. just it, the delta between a, like a fixed and a floating rate and that's it. Right. Yes. The total economic exposure is the difference between fixed and float times that uh, notional amount, which again could be in the millions. If rates are low enough, it could even be in the hundreds of thousands. Right. So right. that's... And also when there are derivatives on top of derivatives, unwinding that similarly, it's not like those notional amounts have to change hands like two or three times. It's, right. It, that's just never all, going to happen. Right. It's all right. value. It's all economic. Yeah, right. It's all net present. That's kind value. of what I thought. It's yeah. it just doesn't it and doesn't I, make I, sense that it's that that's that scary and unstable uh situation. Yeah. And I calculated it to be um of all um, I'll send you a link to this is really hard to suss out um as far as what the total outstanding balance of, you know, dollars uh, and, and dollar obligations around the world is. But I'll um, send you a that you can link. Um, I'll post it on my website and send you a link of my breakdown that kind of shows my best estimate of what that looks like. Um, so nice. that, yeah, so that's that's one is the derivatives. And then the other thing, too, is um, the total outstanding hundreds of trillions of this or hundreds of trillions of, of that. There's a ton of money, a ton of dollars outside of the U.S. that we don't transact, that we don't see, that is only transacted outside of our borders. This is the euro dollar market. And that is not a danger of hyperinflation. That is a danger of hyperdeflation. The more, uh, so a, a huge buildup of debt and a huge buildup of financial obligations is, um, it, if you have hyperinflation now, then yes, that is what's causing your inflation. But if you don't have inflation and you see this massive buildup of debt, that's actually a that actually puts you in danger of future deflation. The more debt that you build up, the more there is to destroy yeah, because of right. defaults. Yeah. When debt the deflationary is, when, collapse is very real risk. Yes. Yeah. So the more you have out there, the the uh, the the danger is actually more of a hyper deflation rather than a hyper inflation. Right. Uh, so. So, yeah, that's to me when I look at it does matter, you know, these things uh, that every now and again, you'll see a Bank of International Settlements paper point out. Uh, I think it was Claudio Borio uh, several months back um, who did estimated 80 trillion in FX swaps or something like that. Yeah. So I look at that. Totally. It's it's a concern. It's there. But when you're talking about the duration of or the direction of prices, uh, inflation versus deflation, that's a deflationary force. A buildup of all of this outstanding debt is that's indicative of future deflation rather than inflation. Mm -hmm. Well, someday we'll have to um, 
actually do a show on derivatives so people can understand them a little bit better because it is scary. People are worried about it. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's wrap. Is there any parting thought that you absolutely can't left, leave unsaid? Um, yes, the conference board's index of leading indicators is still negative. Um, if you have your money on the sidelines because you're waiting for a reignition of an economic cycle for stock returns, I would encourage you to reevaluate that position um, carefully. I'm not saying plow all your money into stocks, but I do have uh, relatively small holdings in a couple of different stocks right now um, because we very well could be in the midst of a new bull market. We did hit an all-time high, which after you come off of two years of correction is usually a pretty good indicator. I have um, a little 401k. What should I do with it? I got dry powder. It's not a lot, but it's something. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, half of mine is in bonds right now because um, I'm on the interest rate trade. And then, so what, but that's what not bonds? what you should do with oh, it. Oh, okay. What uh, bonds, though? What duration or whatever? Just what a, maturity? Oh, a um, it's a medium term, which is usually considered to be seven or eight to ten year, um, and it's a U.S. bond fund. It's pretty vanilla. It's mostly treasuries, like ninety five percent treasuries and five percent corporate. Right. Okay. Those treasury bonds are going to be the ones that benefit the most from recession or um, you know, rate cuts or anything like that. Um, from what I can tell, the corporate bonds, though, once the credit cycle starts to get going again, those mm -hmm. corporate bonds, they return a lot more on the upside. So, but that's a whole, um, but what should I do? You said you shouldn't do that. What should I do? Right. Well, that's assuming, well, no, I would still put half into bonds, uh, because there's still more, more room to run on the interest rate trade. Okay. Um, and then I would start to, you know, I have a couple of different ways of calculating a stock exposure, and I would just need to, uh, like, we should just take that off air because it's more than, <laughs> You're more than we had time. Actual to, advice? That's excellent. More um, than we had time to get into, and I don't want to get bonus. sued. So. I never expect anyone to say something actually real, but if you want to tell me really what to do, that would be great. Okay. Uh, okay, excellent. Well, I'll save that then for next time for off air. Oh, I'm yes. sorry. One, Go ahead. One What's more your thing. thing. Mm -hmm. um, the BRICS currency. The thing that you should look out for there is if there's, I don't think it's going to be successful. I think there's about a 50% chance that they, that they would actually flesh out an attempt. But if you hear any member of a monetary, monetary authority in one of those five countries, it's yep. five, right? Or is it six? Yep. Yeah. If you hear those members of the monetor, monetary authorities start to talk about targeting and uh, normalizing inflation rates between their countries... They're getting mm -hmm. serious. Interesting. Because what that, um, I was just looking back at, and then this is another link that I want to send you. Um, I was looking back at the euro and currency blocks in general and things like the SD, the IMF's SDR and all this stuff um, just to get a sense of how realistic a, you know, a block currency like that could be. And I don't think it's realistic at all. Um, I don't think that block currencies really work. But when the Eurozone got serious is when they got all the countries together who were going to be members and said, well, if we're going to have a single currency union, we're going to have the same interest rate. And if we're going to have the same interest rate, then we have to have uh, close inflation rates. 
And so in the early 90s, that's what they started to work towards mm. was getting everybody's inflation Ordinate rates unified. Monetary policy. So, yeah, if the BRICs are serious about that, I think that that's going to be, um, they're going to have to do something like that and you'll see it. Well, we'll so, probably talk before that happens. Probably so, yeah. But just something to think about. Excellent. Okay, so please tell people how they can communicate with you directly and follow what you do or get your newsletter and your interest rate outlook is fantastic. And I like your little bits of humor, but I love nerdy math humor. So, <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm, like I'm reading so and I'm laughing and my husband's like, what are you laughing? I'm like, oh, where's the interest rate outlook? It's just so funny. <laughs> and he's just like, I married a party girl. I ended up with a nerd. <laughs> so, okay, so what you got? So Hilarious. tell people how to find you. Yeah, so on Twitter, Jason's Deli 1821 altogether. Um on Instagram is uh Purcell Research, P U R C E L L Research. And on um you can go to my website to subscribe to the newsletter and I have a form now where you can check off the materials that you actually want. So if you maybe don't want the interest rates outlook because it's too long or whatever, uh, but you just want other kinds of content, then you can check those boxes. So that's jpurcell.me. Um and then there's a button that says I think it says join. <laughs> um I think it says join. So yeah, just hit the button. There's you'll know you'll know when They'll you see it. There's it a out. button, go there. There's the form. Yeah. Okay. As always, send me a link. Send me an email with all your links. I'll put them in the show notes on the Monica Perez show where all of you are listening now. And uh I very much appreciate your time, Jason. As always, it's been great getting to know you. And thank you all for listening and uh check out his stuff and we'll we'll talk to you next time, Jason. Thank you so much. That sounds great. Thanks for having me. Take care, everybody. <laughs>